Welcome to Chowder and Grits. Today is Tuesday, June 4th, and Tim, we have reached the 1,000 downloads mark. Congratulations, sir. Yeah, the you know, back pats all around. I should have had a reggae horn ready to go when you topped that. That is a, uh, boy, what a milestone, you know? And, and we'll be right back here for our 10,000th download, too. Yeah, we will. Chowder and Grits is the podcast for ACC and Hokies football, just in case you forgot. But if it's your first time joining us, we're glad to have you. Uh, Today we are continuing our spring recap series. Uh, We're going to talk about some Duke football and Wake Forest. Obviously, those two teams aren't the sexiest uh, that we have to offer in the ACC. So we are going to be bringing you uh, probably the segment of the year, our top five favorite minor league baseball team names, or not really even favorite, just like most outlandish, which that's what minor league baseball does. So you got to be you got to be excited for it. But, oh, yeah. uh, but Tim, what's going on otherwise? You know, I had a late day at work, so I'm kind of uh, unwinding now. And, uh, you know, still the long slog until college football season's hitting me hard. I am dying for college football, so much so that I brought out my PS2 and I've been playing NCAA 2005 with none other than Larry Fitzgerald on the cover, uh, trying to, you know, make the time pass a little faster for me. Larry Fitz. I got to tell you, Tim, uh, so I'm a, you know, a suffering, long-suffering Baltimore Orioles fan, so I tuned in to the Major League Baseball draft today, and you know, I was very happy with, uh, with the pick, but that's not really what I'm focused on. Everybody wants to talk about how baseball's viewership is going down, and I'm a draft connoisseur. I love watching the NFL draft. Oh yeah, I'm not even that big of an NBA guy, and I watch the NBA watch draft. The draft. Got to. It's just exciting. It's like an event. Yeah. The MLB draft, I'd say, on a scale of excitement ranging from one to ten, we're at about a one point six on the Richter scale. It's horrible. It is horrible. a bunch of people sitting at tables behind behind tables with logos on with tablecloths clapping every time the commissioner comes out and tries not to fall asleep as he's announcing the pick. Yeah. I mean, you know when you're at a Mexican restaurant and that sombrero comes out and about three waiters start singing, you know, whatever birthday song they have, about three people not related to the family getting the song sung for them start to clap a little bit, but the rest of us are in like just kind of this awkward state of I really just want to keep eating my quesadilla, but now I have to find something to do with myself while I listen to 30 seconds of awkward Happy birthday, mariachi music. It's like that, except repeated over and over and over again. My my favorite part, you know, the Orioles GM, VP, player development guy who makes the picks. This entire draft is so low budget. He just had the <laughs> first pick in the draft, and he's on an interview via Skype <laughs> that taps out. Oh, just, that's perfect interferes breaks can't understand a word he's saying it's like okay thanks mike and back to harold reynolds in the studio <laughs> oh my god yeah that's the only they really need to drum this up a little bit because i love the mlb draft from a prospect standpoint prospects in baseball fascinate me and a lot of these guys coming out of college uh going into the draft the over the under slotting there's a lot going on in the mlb draft that the other drafts don't have and they could totally lean into that they could turn it into a huge farm system review where they're looking at the various pieces the other teams have in play. They could really turn it into something exciting, yet there we are as the Mexican Sobrero is brought out to the table and we all have to figure out what to do with ourselves for three hours while um, these people un- unenthusiastically announce draft picks for what seems like an eternity. Yeah, I mean, it's just we talk about ways to promote the game and uh... – If I were trying to get into baseball and get excited about my team's pick, if I was not a baseball guy, I'd probably never watch it again after seeing what's what's been on tonight. But let's not dwell on that too much. Uh, Tim, there's a couple of things going around uh, in the state of the Virginia Tech program. Um, You know, not good things. Well, one's not good, one's one's good. Uh, The not good thing... Just from a new standpoint, Bryce Watts, uh, their young cornerback who struggled mightily at times last year, 
he is transferring outside of the program. Got a, uh, you know, got some life happenings going on. He wants to be closer to home, so uh, he did compete during the spring. But the Hokies are going to have to fill the void of Bryce Watts now because he was supposed to be the starter next year, uh, even as bad as he played last year. So it's basically the next guy up. Hokies in the secondary. That is now a looks like it's going to be a pain point again for next season. Yeah, and you know, congratulations to him. I totally understand why he would want to be closer to home uh, with a baby boy on the way. So I think that's great. Um, and you know, it's hard. It, it stinks because you kind of have to be honest about how poor he was last year. But in his defense, the schemes that Bud Foster runs does does no cornerback any help. I mean, it's single coverage out on the outside. Um, and if you have trouble in single coverage, um, or you are not just an elite level cornerback, um, or even above average, you're, you're going to struggle and it's going to be painfully obvious when you do. So, um, you know, you would have seen him, you would have liked to have seen him get a little more help next year or, uh, last year, but, um, I think there's potential there and, and certainly the experiences he had this year will help him wherever he chooses to go, whether that be Rutgers or, um, you know. That's the only New Jersey school I can think of off the top of my head, so we'll go with that. Um, yeah, but good luck to him, and best of luck in his personal life, too. It's just that, that boundary corner position is what they refer to it as, and it's basically described by Foster as, we're going to leave this guy one-on-one every single time. And only the best players on the in that secondary are able to run it effectively. Right. Like If you look at Brandon right. Flowers, he was really kind of the first guy to do it. Um with the coined boundary corner. Right. Uh, even like a guy like Macho Harris, he didn't uh, play that position until his senior year, largely because Flowers was there, but also because he just wasn't as good good at it as, uh, as Flowers. But you got the Fuller brothers. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's a tough position to play for, for a freshman, so we'll see who's going to fill that this year. I don't know. Maybe they need mm-hmm. to adopt a new strategy over there, but uh, something a little bit more positive for the Hokies. Uh, Tavian Feaster, a transfer prospect outside of or coming out of Clemson, uh, he was a four-star, one of the highest uh, sought-after prospects coming out of high school, number twenty-nine overall in the country. Yep. Um, he was the number one all-purpose back, number one prospect outside of the state of South Carolina. It sounds like it's down between the Gamecocks and the Hokies for Feaster. Uh he was in Blacksburg last week. It sounds like the meeting went well. He can't enroll until August. Everybody's just kind of sitting and waiting to see what happens. But he would be a nice little home run threat to the Hokies backfield that they haven't had since Mr. ACC Player of the Year and first-round NFL draft pick David Wilson was in town. Oh, man, Dave, David Wilson, talk about electric. And um, kind of in the same vein, what you're seeing here is a guy who's, who's a little bigger than David Wilson. But... When you talk about home run hitters, he is one, and that's something that, as we talked about before, that's we've sorely missed that in our backfield for quite some time now. And what a huge get he would be for uh, for the Virginia Tech Hokies and Justin Puente. Um, you know, I will say I couldn't imagine a more massive heel turn for a guy to go from Clemson to South Carolina in one off season. I mean, could you imagine that? That's basically like you just want to tarnish your legacy in the eyes of Tigers fans forever. I just I don't understand why you'd make that move. I don't either. I don't either. I mean, they're um, basically just like a carpet for Clemson to just trample and pounce yeah. And, yeah. and make dirty before they head over to the ACC championship game. Yep, that's all it is. Um, yeah, that and and you add in the uh, you know the audacity and the stones it has to take to go from you know okay I'm going to be a, a tailback at Clemson to then in one off season go to my team's biggest rival. It just I can't see that happening. It, it's hard to imagine. But, hey, Gerald McCoy signed with the Panthers for less money today just so he could get to play the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for twice in a season. So maybe there's some bad blood there. That's That seems kind of odd to me, though, just getting on the Gerald McCoy thing for a little bit. Is that really the reason? That's what I'm thinking. I mean, that seems to be the speculation from all of the Twitter people who have verified check marks next to their name. Um, and, and, I mean, I get it. So, okay, if you're Gerald McCoy, right – um, you were cut for, for cap purposes. Then your number was given away to Indomitian Sioux, um, basically while your jersey was still warm, after you had given the entire prime of your career uh, to being an all-pro and just an absolute animal in Tampa Bay. 
And maybe he sees it as a, you know, no love was shown to him, no loyalty was shown to him. So um, there was only one team that really had a shot of signing him um, in the division, and he took it. So I, I could think of more outlandish things to happen. And honestly, as a Panthers fan, I'm extremely biased, but moving to the 3-4 next season, uh, the Panthers are going to have a defensive line of K1 Short, Dontari Poe, and Gerald McCoy. It may be one of the best uh, three-man defensive lines in the NFL. So I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The number thing is interesting. You know, that actually just happened in Green Bay. The Packers drafted uh, Rashawn Gary out of Michigan and uh, gave him number 52, which had been long worn wow. by Clay Matthews, who is now on the Los Angeles Rams. But my thing is, if you're not going to be retired and you're on a different team and you're playing, then it's fair game. You know, it's not like yeah. you just retired. Sure. And they gave it to somebody. So I think I think that to me is the protocol. And if you want to use that as motivation, then go for whatever you need to find. But uh, let's jump into spring recap number three, Tim. Let's talk about the Duke Blue Devils. So Duke has a head coach, David Cutcliffe. He just signed a two-year extension in March. Uh, That takes him through 2023. He's a two-time ACC Coach of the Year and actually won the 2013 National Coach of the Year He's 67 and 72 in 11 seasons with Duke. Now let's preface that with the fact that in the eight years prior to him arriving, Duke only won 10 games and lost 82. So it wasn't a very good program to be coming into. Uh, They did win the Coastal Division in 2013 and have made a bowl in six out of their last seven years. The only two schools in the ACC that have done it more, Clemson and your Virginia Tech Cokies, seven for seven during that stretch. So Duke had a little bit of a uh, rough season inside the conference last year. Go three and five. Their wins coming against Georgia Tech, who uh, we actually had a little reminder right before this podcast started, finished second in the Coastal. That's how bad the Coastal was last year. Surprise. Uh, Miami and North Carolina, those were their three conference or conference wins. Uh, eight and five overall, but they did absolutely demolish Temple in the Independence Bowl with the strong performance by Daniel Jones, which takes us to the NFL draft. He was the sixth overall pick by the Giants, and uh, that was their only pick. The uh, The other thing to note here, they had an early entrant, Joe Giles Harris, linebacker, really kind of the uh, vocal and uh, just overall leader of the defense last year. Uh, went undrafted, did sign with the Jacksonville Jaguars, but uh, two of their uh, leaders on both sides of the ball are – uh, going to be replaced heading into this season. So those are kind of the uh, the big things to look out for. They kind of avoided the transfer portal. They did have six players enter, uh, four of those on defense, but no real playmakers to be that concerned about, I don't believe. But, Tim, really the key theme of uh, their spring is who's running the offense, who's running the defense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that is going to be the key to their spring, and it'll be interesting to see what they have going on. Um, you know, losing Daniel Jones for the NFL is kind of obviously a big hole for them. Um, Giles Harris, obviously huge too. Um, and it's going to be tough. Cutcliffe's a guy who gets pretty good production out of his quarterbacks, whether it be Eric Ainge at Tennessee or Thaddeus Lewis, uh, that he had at Duke. He seems to always get solid production. Um, but really when you consider what he did with Daniel Jones, it, it almost seems like a guy with as much talent as he seems to possess maybe underperformed a little bit for Duke. And and that's honestly surprising in that regard to me. Um, As far as who's going to take over for him, uh, I I guess it seems to be Quentin Harris for now. Um, And that's going to, you know, get him a guy who's got a fairly good arm, but can also run the ball a little better than Daniel Jones could, even though Daniel Jones was sneaky good at running the ball. Um, It's going to be a tough season for Duke. And when we get into our analysis and breakdowns of these previews for these teams coming up, Duke's actually going to be an exciting one to do because we don't really know what they're going to be next year. Uh, the easiest answer would be to say, hey, they're going to struggle. But, you know, I'm not so sure they will. And if there's one thing that Cutcliffe does well, it's it's being pretty at least average when it comes to being a head coach at Duke. So um, he's really going to earn his money next year. Yeah, so I think um, I think it is Quentin Harris 
who is is going to at least start the season. And guess what, Quentin? First game of the year, Chick-fil-A kickoff. You get to play Alabama. Congratulations. Congratulations. Woo! Welcome. Tell to him what he's football. won, Justin. So uh, he's, he had a pretty good spring from the sounds of it. You know, he uh, played pretty well in the spring game, uh, accounted for all four of the game's touchdowns. Um, the thing that he brings to the offense that Daniel Jones uh, could not is, you know, a dual threat option. So right. paired with um, Deion Jackson, who might be the best running back in the ACC. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, watch out for him. But he uh, it's going to be a run heavy, uh, a run heavy attack in, uh, in Durham this year. So the one thing that that Harris has struggled with in the past and what coaches have been concerned about is his accuracy. And so when you're playing quarterback, that's obviously an issue. But he has had time to sit behind Daniel Jones. He's gotten all your, I'd say, the majority of the first team reps um, in the spring. So, you know, it seems like he's been more accurate accurate in, in practice and in shorts. Will it translate to the field? I'm not going to hold the first game against them if it doesn't, but let's see what happens uh, for the rest of September after that. Yeah, and, and the key for him too is is learning how to be a better passer from the pocket. For a guy who's listed at six one, but in all likelihood is more like five eleven to six foot, um, that's going to be something that's going to be tough to combat. It is really being comfortable when you can't see over the offensive line as well, uh, and, and look for Duke to use him kind of like Russell Wilson was used at NC State, which was hey, let the guy get out of the pocket as often as possible, and and really really use his his feet to an advantage, take advantage of the double threat, uh, tuck the ball and run, but also get him some better looks from outside the pocket. I think that's going to be absolutely key for them. Yeah, and, and just kind of going to the running game. So Deion Jackson, if you're not familiar, he received uh, all ACC second team honors last year. He did set the Duke single game record for all-purpose yards with 403 at Pitt and uh, just one of the only the third ACC player to reach 400 all-purpose yards in a single game. Yeah. He uh, was the leading rusher for Duke uh, in yards and touchdowns and also ranked fourth in reception. So kind of a do-it-all back. Uh, he's somebody that the offense is going to rely heavily on. I would not overlook Britton Brown. This guy, former four-star running back recruit to Duke, and has just had a lot of injuries, hasn't been able to stay on the field. Um, it sounds like he had a pretty decent spring. I think Brown and Jackson could be the best one-two punch in the ACC next year, kind of replacing that uh, Darren Hall, Quadriolison attack up at Pitt. Yeah, there's not a doubt about that. And it's going to be really exciting to see those two in the backfield tear it up, and they're going to be leaned on pretty heavily. Um, but really, I mean, two guys that, that are really playmakers, I mean, I remember Deion Jackson having a 75-yard touchdown last year. can't remember who it was against. I think maybe Miami. Um, it's not popping up to the forefront of my head right now. But the guy is absolutely explosive. And if Britton Brown can live up to some of his potential, uh, being a four-star recruit um, and, and being the electric guy that he is, Duke could be looking at a really good ground game. And, um, you know, if they can get the offensive line performing at a high level, it could be another season where, you know, Quentin Harris isn't the only guy that's got to pull the load there, and you know they could be even more dynamic considering the uh, the ability that Quentin has on the ground. Throw in two dynamic playmakers in the backfield, uh, Duke could be really something to uh, contend with. Yeah, and so jumping to the defense, I think defense is where maybe more of the concerns lie. I think they'll probably be sure. able to get away offensively with Harris, a quarterback. Um, but you know, as mentioned, Joe Giles Harris is gone. You know. Wasn't drafted, but this guy was an All-American last year. Was no doubt the leader at the defense. They also lost Ben Humphreys, who, um, another linebacker. He's also on NFL roster now. Um, I think it's time for, and I'm probably going to jack up this name, but Victor Demkije, defensive <laughs> end. He is kind of the guy people are pointing to as, you know, the next man up. Yeah. And so he... Uh, He's a pass rusher, kind of a, a 3-4 hybrid type of role. He can drop back in coverage. He can also blitz the passer. Um, I think he is going to be the guy that the defense kind of flocks to. And then um, they've got a couple of playmakers in their secondary as well. Uh, Mark Gilbert, he was an all-ACC corner. Uh, didn't play this spring, but definitely led that unit. Um, 
But, you know, we'll kind of see what happens. I think we're going to see a lot of freshmen kind of step into roles this year. I don't think it's going to be that great of a season for Duke. Um, that being said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them with a, a big upset or two in conference play that, you know, it's very easy to do in the ACC at this day and time. Yeah, and, you know, with that defense going into next year, there's a lot of questions. But last year they had the 36th-ranked pass defense, which is surprising when you consider uh, especially what Virginia Tech did to them in the air. Um, but, you know, they had some injuries, and, and they had a couple of people playing at corner that wouldn't necessarily play there. Um, but I, I'm kind of high on them moving into next season uh, with Gilbert and, and Josh Blackwell kind of manning the two sides there in the corners. I think they could have a sneaky good year there on defense, too. Obviously, the linebacking core is kind of be is kind of going to be where some questions are asked. Um, but we'll see. I, I think they have enough in that pass defense to hold their own, and in a league that continues to get more pass-happy, that can only mean good things. Um, but yeah, it, season can't get here soon enough, man. I'm ready. Yeah, I, I'm interested to see how they play against a team like Virginia Tech that is going to be very high pass volume. And yeah. can they keep up with yeah. a team like that? I'm just, I'm not sure they've got enough players in the secondary to match an offense like that at this, at this point. So, yeah. you know, Virginia Tech, I think is probably just going off the top of my head without thinking too much inside the coastal, probably the highest powered offense there's going to be next year. We don't know what Miami is going to look like. So right. Miami's the kind wild of, card in the, Miami's the, wild the quarterback card, spot. And then Virginia's kind of in there somewhere in between. They're not as yeah. high powered, but they're still solid. So yeah, how yeah. Duke will fare against those three, that's my biggest question, especially with a Tate Martell type probably leading the offense for Miami. But we'll see what happens. Um, I think receiving-wise, they have a lot of young receivers. They do. Um, but some of these guys have experience. So like Jake Bobo, which great yeah. name, by the way. Um, great name. He seems to have uh, a lot of chemistry with Harris. You know, he's probably um, – one of their most experienced guys. He played last year, uh, six foot five target, um, and then Daryl Harding Jr., another six foot five guy. He won the award for most improved player, offensive player, um, of the spring. And so, one of these things about Duke's receivers is they're all big body guys, right? Uh, so their possession types are probably not going to, you know, blind you with their speed. But as we saw last year with Old Dominion against Virginia Tech. If you got big guys that can out physical, you know, the defensive backs, you've got a shot. Yeah. And I think this is one of the cases uh, where Duke's especially concerned. Daniel Jones didn't light it up for them. And I like what Duke has uh, to the point where I do think they're going to have a better season than they had last year. This year, um, there's a lot of playmakers, like you mentioned, Bobo and Harding Jr. For, by all accounts, seems really, really good and, and ready to explode this year. Um, but that, that dynamic threat at quarterback and in the backfield, um, you really can't say enough good things about those tailbacks. And, you know, a one-two punch like that can carry you a long way. Their season is going to hinge on the play of that offensive line because, one, the offensive line is going to have to give Quentin enough time um, and, and the ability to, to play as a new quarterback. They're going to have to keep him and his jersey clean, but they're also going to have to open up holes. And, and that's really, if they get solid line play out of that offensive line, we could be talking about a, a pretty good year for the Blue Devils because we know the coaching is going to be quite good. Um, but yeah, that it's going to be one in the trenches. Both defensive line and offensive line, huge for these guys. We know their cornerbacks can cover. We know their wide receivers and, and tailbacks can make plays. So uh, the trenches, I know it's a cliche, but the trenches are going to determine uh, the fate of Duke season, in my opinion. What's the over or under watching a Duke game this year where Peyton Manning or Eli Manning will be mentioned? I mean, every game. Is there an over or under? Yeah. I mean, I mean it, should so, be an, it should be per quarter. That's what I'm saying. So the amount of times per game times however many games they have. Oh, man. I'm going the five. Oh. It's got to be five per. Five per game would be the over or under. <sighs> okay. And then I'm tempted to almost pick the over because, holy cow. I think maybe the over over the course of the season, it has yeah. a shot. It has a shot. Let's set it for, right. let's set it for 40. Let's right. set it for 40. Right. And it's a passing mention. If the word Manning is uttered in the booth, that counts. Yeah, if you didn't know, 
which if you've watched football for the last decade, I don't know how you wouldn't know by now. Oh, oh, you know. That David Cutcliffe coached Peyton Manning. Uh, but let's move on to Wake Forest, Tim. So Wake Forest, Mr. Dave Clawson leads this unit. Uh, 51-year-old, just signed the eight-year extension after the season. Uh, he has been in Winston-Salem for five seasons, only 28 and 35, but three straight winning seasons with three consecutive bowl victories. That is not easy to do at a school the size of Wake Forest. So he is uh, he's starting to build something pretty pretty nice um pretty nice over there in the acc coastal so they uh they defeated who was it memphis in the birmingham that was yep that was right and uh their biggest win i'd say was nc state who for sure uh, they kind of squeaked by and then they absolutely throttled duke uh late in the season so yeah conference rise three and three and five uh one of those teams that if you're not ready they've got a really good shot to beat you. So well-coached. Uh, they had some playmakers. Greg Dortch was probably their biggest threat on offense and special teams. A guy who was only a sophomore redshirt, had two more years of eligibility, decided to leave early for the draft. He was only the fifth player in school history to leave early for the draft, and then he went undrafted and signed mm. with the New York Jets. So kind of a tough break there for Greg Dortch. You know, I think he would have been um would have been wise coming back for one more season but is what it is uh the demon deeks did have one guy drafted guard phil haynes went in the fourth round 124 overall to the seattle seahawks and then only had two players entered the uh, transfer portal uh they did have one guy come to them from the transport transfer portal uh from old dominion miles fox defensive lineman um, and he was a guy who was expected to play right away, uh, provide some senior leadership, but he suffered a season-ending injury during the spring. So one of the themes in a Dave Clawson defense has been senior defensive linemen. This year, they have none, which is Ooh. one of the key themes. Depth is a major issue on both sides of the ball, specifically the defense, and quarterback competition is underway. If you don't recall... Sam Hartman was a true freshman last year, started the season as the starter, then had a leg injury in early November. Insert redshirt sophomore at the time, Jamie Newman, who was more of a dual threat type. Uh, he played really well for the Demon Deacons, got them the bowl victory. So it's an interesting quarterback competition, Tim. It is. And, you know, Jamie really brought him a huge spark last year. You're talking about, about a guy that's that's fairly mobile, but the thing with Jamie is just just the size of a Ford F one fifty back there at quarterback. So you got a Cam Newton sized guy uh, with the ability to be nimble and and you know his top speed's pretty good. Completely hard, especially in Clawson's offense to scheme for because he's not your typical uh, you know six foot one to six foot three, two hundred and ten pound college quarterback. Jamie Newman's big. And he can really tote the lumber when it comes to hitting defenders. So really, gay, I mean, that was a stark contrast uh, to what was going as far as uh, Sam Hartman goes. So Sam Hartman, almost a completely different quarterback, not as mobile, a guy that's going to want to stay in the pocket. He, you know, he's got a little wiggle to him, but nothing like Jamie brings. So um, really, really brought their season back to life. Jamie comes in, has a great game against NC State, and then absolutely pounds Duke into oblivion. Uh, and gets a bowl game win for him. So, you know, if you're a betting man, you think obviously Newman's got an inside track, but um, from what Clawson is saying, it seems like Sam's going to be given every chance to win the job too, and that it's, uh, you know, an absolute battle for who's going to take that. But I expect to be Jamie to be running the uh, the offense come fall. I really like Jamie Newman. I love I, him. I think he is, for the type of athlete that he is, he just plays the quarterback position to a T and yep. if I'm Justin Fuente I have game tape of Jamie Newman in front of Quincy Patterson absolutely those two guys are very similar in size and stature you yep. know Newman's not going to blow you away with he doesn't have Michael Vick speed okay no 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 but he's he's big and he's strong and he can you know break guys off through the line like he he's he's a dynamic athlete back there and one thing to watch out with Jamie Newman, I don't, I mean, I'm speculating here. If for some reason he doesn't win the job, like he is a surefire 
in a surefire situation to transfer. Now, sure. I still think he'd have the opportunity to transfer after this season because he's still got that one year of eligibility remaining. So I don't know what right. he would be served to transfer if he were to lose that job. But to me, I'm giving the job to Newman, you know, unless something weird happens in the summer practices. But nothing against Sam Hartman. I mean, he had a very solid, fresh, true freshman season, almost 2,000 yards passing, uh, two to one touchdown to interception ratio, went four and five as mm-hmm. a starter. Newman yeah. was three and three. Uh, had around 1,100 yards passing, nine touchdowns, four picks, but added about 250 yards on the ground with four touchdowns. So absolutely, just a little bit of a different dynamic there. Uh, a guy who can keep the defense honest. So maybe that's something Wake Forest needs um, as they head into next season. Yeah, absolutely, and and they'll lean on him. And assuming he wins, uh, if he doesn't, as you said, it's got grad transfer written all over it. Um, you know, but just that dynamic acts aspect he added to that offense once he got into the game late in the season was incredible for me. I mean, nine touchdowns to four picks with a guy that's adding four touchdowns on the ground and just lethal in the read option game. Because even if you hit him in the backfield, the chances of you actually bringing him down are slim to none. Um, I'm really, really high on Newman. And like you said, uh, the guy plays the quarterback position well, and he's extremely efficient even when the slightly lower completion percentage, he's not out there making mistakes. And, um, you know, that win, especially against Duke, uh, to score almost 60 points and and that offensive explosion followed up by scoring 37 on Memphis, who um, no slouch at all, that they had a pretty good year too. That just, what a great way to end the season for Wake Forest, uh, taking three out of their last four and, and beating a ranked NC State team there as well. So, um It'll be interesting to see what they do as a team. I think the quarterback position is in an absolutely great spot. Um, the the rest of the program has some questions, as you mentioned, has some question marks. But I think Clawson is another one of those guys that Wake Forest just always seems to get sneaky good head football coaches that stay there. Um, that's the thing that's always impressed me is they pick their coaches well, um, and these guys get the most out of their talent at Wake Forest, and I, I expect that trend to continue. Yeah, and so Wake is another team that is kind of going through some uncertainty at the wide receiver position. So uh, their redshirt senior uh, receiver, Scotty Washington, he's got more career catches than every other receiver on the Wake Forest roster combined. (laughs) There you go. 75 to 61. Uh, He actually didn't play at all uh, in the spring offseason shoulder surgery, but he is expected to be ready for summer camp. Um, but they do have a few guys that are ready to kind of step up. Sage Surratt, he was a starter last year, 41 catches, 581. Yep. Um, and then they've got some guys like Steve Claude and Perry, uh, A.T. Perry, and then Waydell Jones, um, who also had some decent spring. So another group of big wide receivers. Uh, so we'll see how that plays. It, it feels like a possession offense with Jamie Newton, Juman, Jamie Newman running it. So, yeah. um, I just think this group of receivers really fits fits him well. They do. And, you know, the question marks for them and their receiving core is going to be with the little guys. They got the big playmakers. But in Clawson's offense, the slot is used so exceptionally well. You went from Greg Dorch, who absolutely manhandled that position in recent years and, and played so well. Who was 5'7". Before seven. that, yeah, 5'7". You had Tabari Hines, another, I think, 5'8 player the year before him, uh, who absolutely tore it up, transferred to Oregon. And just so happens, use his grad transfer year to come down to NC State. So now another one of your great slot receivers is playing, you know, across the state in Raleigh, North Carolina. And you're left with questions now as far as what do you do with the most dynamic piece of that Wake Forest offense, especially in the wide receiver core? Well, they're turning to Kendall Hinton, who was their backup quarterback. And I believe he may have even started some games uh, for the past four seasons. So... It'll be interesting to see what Kendall's able to do. Kendall coming out of high school was a pretty big name uh, locally in North Carolina and is a guy that is certainly faster uh, than Jamie Newman. He's quick. He's smaller. um, But a transition from quarterback to slot wide receiver can't be an easy one to make. Um, So it'll be interesting to see what Kendall's able to do and if that's something that works for him. But they're going to need to find some production out of that slot uh, to remain successful. In my opinion, that's one of the most important pieces in Clawson's scheme. Yeah, Greg Dorch is going to be a tough guy to replace, not just on offense, but on special teams as well. So he was uh, he was a big part of what Wake Forest did last year. So Absolutely. Uh, definitely need to find somebody to fill the void there. 
Uh, jumping over to the defensive side of the ball, if we look at the linebackers and secondary, this is a area where I think we're going to see a lot of freshmen uh, getting yes. some looks because um, just a lot of uh, a lot of seniors have graduated. In this group, there's already been two guys that have been lost for the season, linebacker DJ Taylor and uh, safety Peyton Wollard, who have had season-ending mm-hmm. injuries in spring. Um, but they do have two incoming linebackers, four incoming defensive backs uh, in the recruiting class. So uh, it's basically whoever whoever shines during summer camp, you know, you're going to get thrown into the fire, basically. So yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of questions in that unit. It, they might be giving up a lot of points next year. They gave up a, a fair amount last year. So uh, the offense is really going to have to step up and help support this young, uh, maturing defense. Yeah, and it's a shame to hear those injuries already occurring. I know Wake, especially last year, had a lot of issues staying healthy. Um, but the departures of Cameron Glenn and Chuck Wade Jr. are going to be hard to kind of replace. They're going to have to do some patchwork there, moving some cornerbacks over to safety uh, to get bodies out there. But losing your starting strong safety and your starting free safety would be tough for anybody to replace at this point in time. Um, but you really hope that they're going to be able to replace uh, Taylor, as you mentioned, and linebacker. Um, and get some guys that can really play hard and, and, and get some good minutes. The good, you know, the, the, the flip side of that is there's going to be some young guys getting some playing time on this Wake Forest team pretty early on. So you'll be able to find your next generation of players on the defensive side of the ball, but it is going to be a season where the offense is going to have to do the heavy lifting. There's no doubt about that. So uh, speaking of young guys, Tim, one guy to watch on the defensive line, Shamar McCollum. He okay. is a three-star, enrolled early. When he started spring, he was 210 pounds. He's now up to 240 and has become known as a havoc-wreaking pass rusher during okay. the spring. So this is a unit where there's only one returning starter. And just reading this name and the Storm Duck situation and Jake Bobo <laughs> – you know, I think we need to, after we're done recapping the spring, come up with an all ACC names team going into the season. <laughs> Boogie we really do. Basham is the only returning starter on the defensive line. 6'5, 275 pounds. Fourth, fourth on the team with 64 tackles last season. And uh, team high 11 tackles for loss with four and a half sacks. So uh, getting to the quarterback uh, is not an issue for old Boogie. And then add in the man child that is Shamar McCollum. This this uh, Wake defensive line might take some of that pressure off of the uh, the inexperienced secondary. Yeah, and and pressure on the quarterback is going to be the name of the game for them. Um, you know, I'm I'm pretty high on Fox at defensive tackle. Although obviously the upgrade in conference is going to be something he'll have to contend with. I and mean, I believe he's dealing with injuries, so he'll have to make sure he gets those behind him. But. Uh, you know, when when you got Boogie coming after you, I mean, you got a you got a hell of a chance of getting to that quarterback anytime they have they uh, snap the ball. So, um, I'm all in on the name Boogie, and, and the last name Basham's great too. But or Basham, uh, either way, no matter how you pronounce it, naming your kid Boogie is a great way to get him off to the right start. And I expect nothing but greatness. I mean, it's not Boogie Cousins, but it's close. It's close. Close enough. Yeah. Close so, enough. you know, I, I that's our. That's our recap for Duke and Wake. Unless you have anything else to add, no, nothing else to add. I just, I really like the two coaches that we had today. I think Cutcliffe and Clawson are just the the ACC is special in that regard. You got two schools, football programs the size of Duke and Wake Forest, um, and I would take either of those coaches in a heartbeat. I think they're fantastic for the programs that they lead and. Um, you know they they really make the ACC a tough conference. The ACC doesn't get enough credit for for the coaching that goes on. Um, and I just wanted to give a shout out for the quality that those two have been able to achieve at Duke and Wake. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I think Clawson's probably one of the most unheralded coaches in the country. I think the job no he's doing at Wake has been kind of unnoticed. But you know, if they get in a little bit of a hot, more high profile bowl, uh, I think he'll start getting some of the credit that he deserves. But yep. One of the things we wanted to do, I should have mentioned this in the beginning, is since we are switching gears to more focus on Virginia Tech, um, obviously still bringing you all the ACC football coverage, we wanted to focus on one of the most memorable, memorable games 
between the two teams we're talking about. So we're choosing one game in particular. Uh, you probably know where I'm going with this one. Virginia Tech against Wake Forest, November 22nd, 2014. Probably one of the worst games in the history of college football, Tim. <laughs> this it's a, it's iconic. What do you mean worse? It was it was iconic. We got the Frank Beamer arms in the air. Yeah, uh, I, this is one of the most iconic images of Virginia Tech futility we'll ever see. It's it's not just the Frank Beamer arms in the air frozen image that's in my head. It's also the <laughs> ESPN scoreboard that ran along the bottom that read zero to zero end of regulation. Yeah. It was perfect. It was a meme. That you didn't have to do anything to to actually make it a meme. It was just created naturally and organically, and it was beautiful. So this really stands out because it was one of just the the low points in the end of the the Beamer era and uh, penultimate season for Frank. Um, I honestly thought I would never witness Virginia Tech not being able to score a single point against a Wake Forest football team oh boy. Uh, for, for sixty minutes. <laughs> so it happened. Um, you know, something had happened afterwards that was brought to our attention. I don't know if it was a year or two later, but the whole WikiLeaks thing, you know, this game was part of that. So right. a uh, former Wake Forest staffer, I think it was a Wake Forest staffer, gave um, a bunch of coaches on different teams information, and Shane Beamer was the guy who received it said he didn't use it which i I think the proof is in the pudding (laughs) i'm not not sure he used anything (laughs) no but uh (laughs) no it was actually not well it was actually a pretty decent quarterback matchup 10 you had michael brewer against john walford who uh if you didn't know john walford uh was the star of the arizona hot shots in the american alliance of football or the alliance of american football uh he's now in the la rams so he Good. is uh he's over there with Jared Goff and Blake Bortles. But uh yeah. kind of going into this game, Tim, you know, looking back, I had forgotten how bad of a year that was for for the Hokies. And oh, man. uh going into oh. this game, Wake had lost six straight ACC games. <laughs> so Oh boy. Let me read to you, Tim, how each drive in the in regulation ended. Are you ready? I'm ready, sadly. Okay, this is the first half. Punt. 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 <laughs> Punt. Punt. Interception. Ooh. Punt. 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 Missed field goal by Wake. Fumble by Virginia Tech. Punt. That ended the first half. Oh. Second half. Missed field goal by Wake. Punt, 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 punt. Fumble by Virginia Tech, punt. Interception thrown by Virginia Tech, punt, punt, missed field goal by Wake. Mm. So to update, just to recap the game, because that was it. Uh, (laughs) Virginia Tech did not even attempt a field goal until the first overtime. Wake was 0 for 3 for field goals, and Virginia Tech had a third and nine in the second overtime and was sacked, which led to a 53-yard field goal missed, and then finally the Wake Forest kicker ended the misery of every every party involved and made a 39-yarder to win the game 6-3. to So mm. if you don't recall, Tim, this was the same year that Virginia Tech opened the season with a win against Ohio State, who won the national championship this year. Virginia Tech beat them on the road by two touchdowns and then followed that up with two consecutive home losses to East Carolina and Georgia Tech. Now, was that not the most Virginia Tech football thing I've ever said? It absolutely was. That is, uh, you know, that's nostalgia there for me. You couldn't have described the peaks and valleys of being a Hokie fan better than you just did. You summed it up entirely well. So, Tim, just from your perspective, where does this rank in in games you've had to witness all time? Because it's not the worst for me from my personal experience having watched 
Virginia Tech over the course Ugh. of my lifetime. I, I mean, no. I'm not sure there could ever be a single worst game if we take out a national championship loss. Yeah. I know what game that is, and that will be previewed at or talked about in a uh, later episode coming up. But Yeah, soon, soon nonetheless, and I know which one you're going with there. Yeah. This one was interesting. So I remember texting you guys during this game uh, w- with our group thread. We, we tend to text every Virginia Tech game, and this one was oddly quiet. Uh, given the fact there was nothing going on. But two, we had been so desensitized to Scott Loeffler's antics as an offensive coordinator that it was almost expected that we weren't going to score points in this game. Um, so it was really, you were just numb to the pain. And I think that's why it didn't really resonate with me like certain other Virginia Tech losses. Uh, because, and this wasn't even a loss, it just felt like a loss. But oh, this unlike was a loss. the others... So it was 6-3, right? That's right. Wake Forest lost. Or Wake Forest won. Um, yeah, this was In overtime. <laughs> but it's, it feels like a loss. Oh. Uh, but it, we, we were so desensitized to everything that Scott Loeffler had done as an offensive coordinator. And he's really one of the worst offensive coordinators Virginia Tech's ever had. Um, it, was, it was, you know, the swan song for Frank Beamer. Um, and it just pain. Pain is all I can think about. But really, you just... You had learned to live with it at that point in the season. I mean, this was not the first time that we had failings on the offensive end. It seems everything on the offensive end fell apart after uh, the win in the horseshoe. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if Bowling Green was aware of this game uh, before. They clearly weren't. For, they they clearly weren't for making uh, him the head coach. But you know what's what's hard to believe is we were able to win the two games after this one. Because yeah. we were five and six going into the UVA game, and we ended up beating them twenty four to twenty. And then Virginia right. Tech goes on to beat Cincinnati in the Military Bowl, and they finish the season with a winning record. So finish seven and six. Right. It's very similar to this year, except we didn't win the bowl game. So this year or the twenty fourteen season easily could have been the first time in however many years it was up until that point, 2021, 20, where they didn't have a winning record in the season, but they somehow got right. it done. But just kind of going back to this Wake Forest game, like there's there's bad football games, okay? Every team's good for one or two a year. But this was an all-timer, and I oh, yeah. hope to never have to sit through one of these again. No, I mean, you hope to. Uh, you hope to never feel that pain and that despair. But again, we were numb at that point. To me, and I hate to harp on it, but that season, the worst game that season was the third game of the season. I think it was the third game of the season. After beating Ohio State and losing to East Carolina at home as a borderline top 15 program. And that that 28-21 to 21 game that we lost to East Carolina was just brutal. Yeah. That that was uh, one of the bigger smack in the faces that we've had as fans having to sit there and watch that. Occur. It was it was peak hokey football at its absolutely at at its absolute worst. You go to one of the hardest places to play in the entire country and you come back and lose to East Carolina at home in front of a sold, a sold out Lane Stadium. Boy. That really set the tone for that entire season um, because we weren't done there. I mean, don't forget, we were on ESPN shortly thereafter losing to Georgia Tech. So just a brutal one-two punch there after the highs of beating Ohio State. That's what I remember from that season. That Wake Forest game to me is just a blackout trauma and that iconic image of Frank Beamer celebrating a 0-0 zero to zero scoreline at the end of regulation. You know... It's just, when I went back and looked at that year, I had just forgotten about it. Like, oh, yeah. that's how I coped with it. Because had you told me we beat Ohio State in the same year that we did that against Wake Forest, I would have been like, no, that's, I don't think that's the right year. Right. But it was. It, it Somehow, it doesn't even make sense when you try to rationalize it like that. It doesn't make sense. I mean, you know... There were a lot. <laughs> there were a lot of low points, as I mentioned. Uh, you know the absolute lambasting we got from Miami. Uh, 
just really set the tone, man, for what was a really forgettable season. Um, you know, thankfully it ended on a high note with a fairly decent win over Cincinnati. But boy, that season saw some really, really high highs and some incredibly low lows. Okay. So let's talk about something a little bit more fun here, Tim. I'm in. Minor league baseball team names. So if you're not a baseball fan and you're going to turn the channel, turn this off, hold your horses. Don't do it. You are in for a treat. So, Tim, I don't know how we're going to decide who's going to go first here. Um, I'll let you go first in honor. Okay. In honor. So this, yeah, we'll go with a draft format here. I'll get first pick. Okay. But I feel like at the end of this, we should we should come to an agreement on which one of these names is in fact the best. Oh, I've got them. I've already got them stack ranked. I'm ready to go. Okay. Well, first off the table has got to be the Amarillo sod poop. <laughs> And I hope I hope that's one of the ones that you got because oh, it blew absolutely. me away. <laughs> and so I had to look this up because you're not going to try to sneak a mascot like a sod poodle by me and not expect me to come to get to the bottom of what that is. So a sod poodle uh, is a Texas term for a uh, prairie dog. Now you know. The Amarillo sod poodles, the crown jewel of Amarillo, Texas. I got to tell you, Tim. i had never heard of that one until i started this exercise and i laughed for a good 10 minutes (laughs) like i've i've heard of most of these that messed me up so bad that i could one i couldn't believe it snuck by me and i said okay the sod the amarillo sod poodles great that's gotta be some rookie league no higher than low A ball. Nope, that's a double A affiliate. <laughs> that's a double A affiliate. Yeah. You're thinking so, like holy independent hell. league baseball. Right, exactly. 200 people exactly. Like a season come no, out. No, these are season ticket plans. You know, these are pretty high uh, prospects in the MLB duking it out. These are the sod poodles, baby. Okay, so the sod poodles... <laughs> I can't even take you I, seriously saying that shit. I had them 1A... And one of my favorite team names of all time, the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. <laughs> Come on home, baby. Love it. I did not have the Binghamton Rumble No ponies. way. The Rumble Ponies? Are you kidding me? What is a Rumble Pony? I don't know, but I want it as my mascot. Oh, my gosh. Sign That's great. Up. I cannot believe that wasn't on your radar. It wasn't on my radar at all. Wow. Well, now that the Rumble Ponies are off the table, I don't really know where to go. Um, my next pick, I picked because it was so oddly specific to me um, that I had to give it a shout-out because I think it's absolutely genius, and that is the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. <laughs> Because okay. these are no okay. these are no bay shrimp here. These are jumbo shrimp. These are the shrimp you get endless at Red Lobster every October. The Jacksonville jumbo shrimp. Okay, well I'm gonna one up that because this name makes absolutely no sense, but I I oddly love it, and really I love the mascot more than the name, the New Orleans baby cakes. No oh, God, oh, horrifying mascot. Have horrifying. you seen Have you seen the mascot? I have, unfortunately. It's it's unbelievable. I really don't even know how to describe it. Last I heard, they were thinking about a rebrand. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! If, if you can believe that. But whoever came up with New Orleans baby cakes and whoever said, yep, let's run with that, I'd love to meet those people. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, man. I'm, I'm really, I'm honestly, I'm still stuck on the Binghamton Rumble Ponies. <laughs> Because there's got to be a story there that I need an answer to, and I can't get it. Again, double-A affiliate, New York Mets. This was I a, love it. This was a Tim Tebow team. Really? I did not know that Tim Tebow was a member of that team. He was. Now he's on the triple-A affiliate. Well, I like it. Um, let's see here. I guess it's up to me now. It is. So... This one I picked not because of the audacity of the name necessarily, 
but I just thought it was a perfect team name. Um, and that's going to be the Lansing Lugnuts. Oof. And that's on my list. only because it's so regionally perfect to that part of the country that I had to give it a shout out because it's absolutely beautiful. Um, when you talk about the blue collar streets of, of the upper Midwest, um, you know, you think lug nuts, you think you think monkey wrenches, you know. These fans are covered in oil, getting off of their, their shifts at the factories, if they're lucky enough to have a factory job. Um, because as you know, a lot of these companies left America. But they still have the bastion of the Lansing lug nuts to take away some of that stress, and I think that's beautiful. I, I just love the alliteration. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm a big alliteration guy. Yeah. Lansing big lug nuts. Welcome. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'm 90% sure that's the only reason they threw the jumbo in the Jacksonville jumbo shrimp because it had a J. Oh, I mean, so I respect that. Obviously. I just made that connection, but thank you for that. That's awesome. Uh, okay, so next, my number three overall pick the Montgomery Biscuits. Oh, God, what a great team name. I mean, beautiful. First off, you're in the South. Biscuits are a staple of the South, as well as some grits. I mean, how could I not go with Montgomery Biscuits? I mean, you really, you kind of had to go with them. I'm not going to lie. That was that was one that needed to be in this show. But the Montgomery Biscuits, not only is their name fantastic, their logo is an anthropomorphic biscuit with butter for a tongue. Are you Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, clearly that was that came from the hands of Bob Ross. It is an absolutely iconic, not only hat, the colors purple and yellow go so well together, but a biscuit with butter for the tongue? Oh, man. I mean, that's so next level, I can't even really, uh, can't really get over it. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to tweet out these, uh, these team logos, and we're going to have you vote on Twitter, which are your favorite. So be ready. I'm going to have my le- list. And then we're going to have Tim's list, and we're going to see who goes up. Maybe do a little bracket and see who is the actual winner. My bet's on the Rumble Ponies. Tim, you're up. <laughs> the, the clubhouse leader, I'm not going to lie. Um, so, you know, sticking with the theme of breakfast foods, um, I think, you know, hailing from the great state of Georgia, a state which, you know, where I spent three years of my life, I'm going to go with the Macon Bacon just because that is a perfect name uh, for a baseball team. That is that is absolutely top tier rhyming um and the macon bacon are who i'm going to choose to plug in my fourth spot here i love it i mean you just think of the marketing opportunities around that you you can't i mean there's there's so much and okay so get this a little deeper cut guess what their mascot's name is (laughs) the macon bacon right guess what their mascot is it's perfect i have no idea their mascot's kevin bacon wow I mean, that's that's incredible. That that's, that's incredible. next level. That's next. That's level. that's next level. As a matter of fact, I think they are probably the only sports team in the entire globe that has an actor, a fake version of a real actor as their mascot. Well, this next place I'm going, little little close to home for me or my former home, the Richmond Flying Squirrels. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's top-notch. I mean... That is top-notch. Nutsy the Flying Squirrel, their mascot, <laughs> that guy will Nutsy. get you amped to high heaven to watch, a, oh, to watch a baseball game. You go out to the Diamond in Richmond, you go out, you see Nutsy carrying on in the stands. Who cares if the Richmond Flying Squirrels are winning the game? Nutsy's the entertainment for the night. Hey, you don't give a damn. You don't give a damn. And, you know, I mean, that, that part of the, the beauty of minor league baseball teams are the mascots. Um, you know, you, you gotta love them. Some of the stuff that they come up with is hilarious. Uh, my last shout out, um, is not going to be based on the actual team name. And I, I think I've told this story before, but it's the Altoona curve, uh, Altoona being a town in, in Pennsylvania. The reason I'm giving them the shout out is because the absolute genius of their mascot. So let me paint you a picture. It's a beautiful July afternoon. I've gone up to visit my dad who lives in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And, you know, he says to me, hey, hey, Tim, what do you think about going to see a baseball game? And I say, sure, Pop. I love baseball. We get to the stadium. The stadium is absolutely gorgeous. The backdrop is, you know, a nice Appalachian mountain uh, nestled outside of center field. Uh, the, the sunlight is, is 
peeking over the stadium and it's waning. You know, it's about 7 p.m. It's about to be first pitch. And, you know, I'm looking at center field and I realize there's movement on the center field wall. And, and lo and behold, what happens? The center field wall opens up and out comes one of the most glorious fish I've ever seen to wear a baseball uniform. And I said, Dad, this is the Altoona curve, right? Who is this fish? And I looked, and on the back of this fish's jersey, it said Al Tuna. (laughs) The fish's name was Al, and it was a big-ass tuna. And that is my kind of pun, and I can get behind that every day. And you know who was a freaking rock star for three and a half hours? Al Tuna. Al Tuna was everywhere in that stadium, and to me... That's one of my fondest memories, and I think that is the best mascots in sports. I hope Altoona wins everything for as long as I'm alive. It's beautiful. So what is I – don't, I don't see this fish. I see something that looks like Gumby. <laughs> <laughs> Did you Google Altoona? Yeah, I'm looking at Altoona Curve right now. So Altoona looks like a gray fish. He looks like a gray fish. He may not be the perfect – tuna but he certainly resembles a tuna no, this thing vaguely. is this thing is a green gumby okay now i'm seeing al tuna he's a orange thing he looks like baby shark to be honest look at that smile no look yeah, at that smile yeah, he's, he's that green. smile says i'm ready he actually kind of looks like a hot dog with teeth you're only making him sound more appealing to me right now yeah you're only enhancing the memories that I have of Altoona. Okay, okay. I, I like where your head's at. So I mean, we're down. You know, we've got we've got the the elite names off off the table, right? Right. I mean, yeah, they're picked. I'm just I'm gonna go with this just because I just I I like the sound of it. I understand. I mean, you're not gonna get a sod poodle this late in the draft. The Hartford Yard Goats. Ah, oh, golly, that's pretty close. That's, How did I miss the Hartford Yard Goats? It's a good one. I mean, first off, goats and baseball, I mean, obviously go hand in hand. Especially yeah, here especially, in Chicago. Yeah, I was going to say, especially coming from a guy in Chicago. So, you go to the yard, you see some goats, you're in Hartford, it just makes total sense. Yeah, I mean, because when I think goats, I think Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Uh, and they just have a cool-looking logo. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I just like the sound of it. Hartford Yard Goats. Yeah, I'm going to go see the Yard Goats tonight. What are you doing? Oh, I'm going to go see the Altoona Curve. There's a, there's this fish called Altoona. Oh, fantastic. What's the goat's I name? Mean that- Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. You need to cut that out of this podcast. Absolutely not. <laughs> I, taught, I taught my daughter. She was looking at this animal book. There's a picture of a goat. You know what its name is? Aaron Rodgers. That's, that's the Rogers most speaking. Justin thing I've ever heard that's in my Aaron life. Rogers right there. Yeah, so that's uh that's our names. Uh, you know, I think that was a very solid list. We're going to put this up for a poll on Twitter uh just to kind of get get some banter back and forth. Maybe we'll have a best names vote and then a best mascot vote. How about that? What does that yeah, sound sounds like? good to me. Sounds like a winner. That's what it sounds like. I cannot believe when you said sod poodles, I thought for sure Rumble Ponies was like right behind them. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, the Rumble Ponies thing's messing me up. I'm gonna have to get to the bottom of that one. The Rumble Ponies and the sod poodles. Now, I think they're both double A teams. Now, which is amazing to me what, that we have those kind of names in the double A. Can you imagine ranks. if that was the double A championship, whatever that's called? That would be probably one of the greatest marketing opportunities yeah. in minor league oh baseball my gosh. history. I mean, I'm already. I think I'm going to have to buy a sod poodle hat just just because I own so many hats to begin with. If I didn't own a sod poodle hat and I knew it existed, I probably wouldn't be doing my duty as a as a father and as a man. Oh, I want sod poodles. I absolutely want rumble ponies. I've already got a flying squirrels hat. So they have an alternate logo. Of what looks like, uh, I guess it's an armadillo, which I'm not sure that I understand the connection, given the fact that a uh, sod poodle is a prairie dog, um, and he's kind of sitting in a, in a cowboy stance with his, you know, 
his hands over his pistols on his waist. It's it's awesome. I'm gonna send you this picture. Yeah, I mean, I I like the sod poodle prairie dog. Anyways, like I saw this, I had no idea that was a prairie dog. I didn't bother to look into what. I I just thought it was a made up name. Look, you're not gonna sneak a sod poodle past me and not expect me to research that. I'm sorry. I gotta know. I gotta know. All right, so that is our show for today. We are also going to post a power ranking vote for next week's episode. Whatever topic you decide is what we will discuss. Uh, So be sure to vote on that. Uh, I forgot. I wanted to give a couple of shout-outs here to other teams that I had listed, Tim. I got the Tennessee Smokies. The Ooh, that's a good one. Lancaster Jethawks. Like, what the hell is a Jethawk? I don't know, but it sounds badass. The Lehigh. That's just two really cool things put together, and I'm all about doing that. The Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs. Solid pull. Northwest Arkansas Naturals. I just thought that was kind of a mouthful to say, so I liked it. <laughs> it's definitely mouthful. Probably one of the greatest city names in the United States. Rancho Cucamonga has, oh, has the Quakes. That's perfect. And they didn't uh, even need a name. They just you don't need a mascot when your name's Rancho Cucamonga. That's so good it sounds made up. And then two uh Texas Rangers affiliates, the Round Rock Express. Just a nice little ring to it, you know? Triple That's a. a good, yeah, it's a good sounding one. Down there in Round Rock, right outside Austin. And then you got the Frisco Rough Riders. Ooh. It's yeah, a, see I like that one because that's got a nice historical connection there. Absolutely. Nice little Dr. Pepper Park right up there in, in Frisco, Texas. Nice little place to watch a minor league baseball game. But oh, yeah. as we said, that is today's show. Next week, we've got two of the most high-profile programs in the ACC, the Virginia Tech Hokies and the Florida State Seminoles. We are going to break down their springs in anticipation of bringing you a preview later in the summer to preview the 2019 football season. Once again, we are Chowder and Grits, the podcast for ACC and Hokies football. You can listen to us on Twitter. Not on Twitter. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Store, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. And then you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, Tim, why don't you uh, tell these fine people what they can do do for us? Tell your friends. Leave some reviews. Five stars always help. We're always looking to interface with more fans, and the easiest way to do that is get some more traffic on our various pages and and various ways of listening. Again, five stars is fine. Four stars is iffy. Um, And if you're feeling extra generous, write a little review. Tell everybody how handsome our voices are and how much you uh, love hearing from us. Also, one last shout-out for me. Um, one of the teams I'm most passionate about is Liverpool Football Club. Uh, Liverpool won the Champions League uh, this past Saturday, and that is a huge achievement for a team that had a completely fantastic regular season but didn't win their league. Uh, winning the Champions League for the first time since 2005 was a very huge deal. Congratulations to Jurgen Klopp, Jordan Henderson, uh, James Milner, all those guys who made the season so special for Liverpool. Um, As usual, we will leave you guys with a go ACC, uh, go Virginia Tech, but most importantly, up the Reds, baby.